This is the Elevate Podcast, where trial lawyers learn, share, and grow. Let's talk about how we can elevate our trial practices, law firms, and lives. And now, here are your hosts, coming to you from coast to coast, trial lawyers, Ben Gideon and Rahul Raviputi. Today's episode of the Elevate Podcast is being brought to you by Smart Advocate. Smart Advocate is award-winning case management software used to manage personal injury, medical malpractice, MDL, class action law firms all over the United States. Great program, highly recommend it. Check them out at smartadvocate.com. Today's episode is being brought to you by Expert Institute. Expert Institute is the place to go for everything involving experts to help you win your case. Check them out at expertinstitute.com. And today's episode is being brought to you by Hype Legal. Hype Legal is a one-stop shop for all of your digital marketing needs. Check them out at hypelegal.com. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm Rahul Raviputi. I'm Ben Gideon. Ben, how are you? Both of our teams are no longer in the playoffs or in the NFL season. It just feels so boring and wrong. I'm not even sure I can bring myself to watch the Super Bowl. Are you going to watch? I mean, probably, but I don't have any plans yet. Yeah. I want to share with everybody, though, that Ben made a bet with me when the Bills played the Patriots, and I was surprised to get the the text message and the offer for a bet, and I, I never do bet on my team. Think it's bad luck, but I took this bet. Right, and uh, the bet was uh, twelve live Maine lobsters, which are going to get delivered to my house sometime soon. Oh man! Uh, because I did win the bet, surprisingly. That was a very bad bet for me to make. I should have taken some points at least on that, and it wasn't even clear to me what I was going to get if I won. But uh, I will find a way to get you twelve live Maine lobsters delivered to California. I started the inquiry into that right before the Christmas season. And at that time, they were giving me a difficult time about shipping given the holiday season. The other thing that probably most of our listeners don't understand is that there's a difference between a hard shell lobster and a soft shell lobster. So in the summertime, when they the lobsters molt and they shed their, their wintertime hard shell, they develop a softer shell, which is... Mainers, we prefer to eat the soft shell lobsters, but the downside of the soft shells is they don't ship well. So now we're in the winter season and the, the lobsters have their hard shells. So there's a, well, they'll ship better out to California, but it's a, the logistics of it are, are very tricky because you have to keep them alive. You know, a lobster after it dies is not good to eat after a very short period of time. So um, I may end up driving them out there personally to you, Rahul, and delivering them uh, in person. Or I'm going to maybe send our one of our new associates to do that, if Taylor lets me. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Next time, though, I'll be smarter about the bet. Oh, yeah. Then I may not take it. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited to meet your partner, Taylor Asin. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. So how did you two um, actually get together? Well, we worked together at a, at a firm that Ben had basically recruited me to. And Ben is somebody who needs change every once in a while. 
And um, at one point, he just said, hey, I think I want to start my own law firm. Do you want to do that with me? And I said, okay. Then we did it without thinking too much about it. I think if I knew how much work it was going to be, I probably wouldn't have done it, but I'm really glad I did. It's fantastic. So how long have you guys known each other before starting the new firm? Our history doesn't uh, go back that far. I think the first time Taylor came to my attention was he, he was working for a plaintiff's uh, class action firm in uh, New York, New York State, New York City area, and came back to Maine. Uh, his family is from Maine. And uh, there's a lot of overlap in our families in an interesting way. His father is somebody I've known. He, he was a prominent lawyer in, in the state and had his own firm for years, probably the top divorce lawyer in our state for many decades. And um, or at least he would tell you that. Right, right Taylor? <laughs> he would, yes. Anyway, that, that's Michael Asen. And, um, and then Taylor's brother, younger brother, Johnny Asen, was my wife's chief of staff when she was speaker of the main house. So they worked very closely together. And then one point, and Taylor went to Yale Law School. I think he was about 12 years or so behind me, but I knew of him in that circle. And then at one point, he came back to Maine probably just for a vacation or a break and looked me up. We had coffee. And that's kind of when we started talking about him coming to work at our former firm. And then, um, you know, when I made the decision, I wanted to leave and and start my own practice he was the obvious and logical person to ask to come with me and um, he was just crazy enough to agree to do that which i'm really grateful and, and thankful for because he's been a wonderful partner and he's very smart lawyer somebody who's really been great to work with and uh, we've had a fun you know we've had a good time building our firm in addition to all the hard work that he alluded to and it has been a lot of hard work we're having fun and we're doing really well. And it's just been, it's been great to work together with Taylor. It's great. And the firm's growing too. Yeah. We just hired a, it is. our fourth lawyer. So yeah. Now it's the prerequisite to join your firm going to either an Ivy league undergrad or law school. Cause I'm not, I'm not submitting my application by the way. That's the prerequisite to <laughs> not, to not hiring. We have a rule that we're not hiring any people who went to Yale law school. We want people who actually know, learn something about the law. <laughs> the thing about uh, that I love about the work we do, it's completely meritocratic, you know? And I think, look, there are a lot of smart people who go to Yale Law School, but it's also, there's an idea that you sort of just have achieved something by going there. But in our work, nobody cares about that, right? It's how you perform in a courtroom and you have to prove yourself over and over again. So... It's really a place where none of that matters. So for you, Taylor, growing up in a family like Ben also, uh, with a parent that's a lawyer and an accomplished lawyer, how did that shape you and how you perform as a lawyer? So I actually did not plan to go to law school. I was in a PhD program for English literature when I was 22, and I it was um, during the Bush administration and which now seems so quaint, but at the time, you know, I was really sort of became focused on political stuff. And I actually had got my older brother is in politics as is my younger brother. And my older brother had worked on access to justice issues. And I became interested in those sort of the, the tort reform issues strangely before I was a lawyer. 
and I left graduate school and decided that I wanted to go to law school. And I must be the only person whose parent is a lawyer who really, uh, my father really discouraged me from going to law school. Uh, he was devastated when I told him I wanted to go. And I called him and said, I think I want to go to law school. And there was a long pause. And he said, what about your childhood makes you want to go to law school? Because, you know, he he is a very good lawyer. and But divorce work is just awful. I mean, it's just, I remember as a kid, I used to walk in on him screaming over the phone. And I would say, I can't believe you talk to lawyers like that. And he said, that's my client. You know, he'd just scream at his clients. Um, it was awful. But I think it's just in my blood, you know, I love it. And I, you know, I love, I love standing up in a courtroom. So um, I don't know what that's about, but I think my dad has come to terms with it. He's glad I don't do the work he did. Um, And once I went, he was very supportive and wanted me to have the, you know, to have the opportunities that I wanted to have. You know, he grew up in a family where no one had been a lawyer and found his own way, but when we were taught, when I was actually talking about starting this firm with Ben, I talked to my dad and he said, you know, when I started my firm, we had a, a receptionist who was on welfare and she used to go, we'd have her go like hang out at the welfare office to pick up clients. So he said, you're going to be starting at a better place than I was starting. So that gave me some confidence to, to jump in. It's amazing. And then, so how many trials have you guys done together? This was our first one, right, Ben? Well, we there was one back at Berman and Simmons when you first arrived that you came to observe. But in right. terms of after we started our new firm, until about six months ago or whatever the number is of months, our courts had been closed. Yeah, for the entirety of our first you know two years as a firm together, and so uh, as soon as the courts opened, we started trying cases. And we've tried three in the last, say, four months, I guess. And one of those I tried with Merrill, one of them I tried with Taylor, and one of them Taylor tried with Merrill. So in terms of trying cases together, where Taylor was a real equal contributor in the trial, we've only done one. Well, clearly the key to our success is Merrill. Now that I hear you saying right, that out that's loud. What I, I, I wasn't going to say that. But yeah. yeah. So... Having tried this case together, and we'll get into some details about it, and for the listeners to know, they these trials were back to back. So one one verdict came on a Thursday, and then Taylor was off to the races on a Monday in the next trial with Merrill. But just kind of interacting together, I'm always curious to see how partners try cases together and how they feel about trying cases together, and where you complement each other and maybe where you don't. So how, what was the experience like and, and uh, where did everything, at least uh, as a partnership and co-counsel go well together? Well, I was fortunate that Taylor kind of volunteered to help me with the case. I had been sort of, uh, this is a case that had been going on by the time we tried it for over six years and had taken many convoluted uh, courses I think we calculated that we had uh, taken or defended a total of 37 depositions throughout the lifetime of this case, which is a lot for a you know, med mal case. It wouldn't be a lot for a California fire case or something like that, but for a single sort of plaintiff case, that's, that's a lot of depositions. Prior to the pandemic or right around the time of the inception of that, we settled with two out of the three defendants in the case. So we had a neurosurgeon, we had a hospital 
we had a radiology group and we settled with the hospital and the radiology group for a, a you know a, a good settlement for our client and we partially did that because we recognized that it was going to probably be years before the case would actually get scheduled for trial and our client is an, an elderly uh, gentleman his wife who was the victim of the malpractice had died during the pendency of the case so when we started the case she was still living as a um, paraplegic following the the injury she suffered and then she died from complications of her paralysis as the case was going and we didn't want to have both of our clients die before the case you know resolved and we could get uh, some money in our client's pocket and make his life a little better a little bit more comfortable uh, in his you know retirement particularly after losing his wife so we elected to settle part of the case and that part settled a couple years ago a couple years before the trial so at the very end uh, and I'd been working on this case on and off for a long time. Taylor had worked on the case with me at various junctures in its lifetime. But then at the end, he very graciously volunteered to come in and, and he essentially took over the the damages side of the case. So he presented our client and several of the uh, fact witness damages witnesses at trial. And just because it had been ongoing for so long and I had been invested in it for a long time. I I did the other aspects of voir dire, opening, closing, and what seems like about a dozen other uh, liability kind of witnesses. But it was enormously helpful to me, partially because uh, you don't know the geography of Maine that well, but our client lives in Maine, but his home is probably about five and a half hours drive from where where we live and where we where our main office is located. So even just going up to that part of the state and meeting with the client and the other damages folks, that took a lot of time and uh, effort to to do all that. Rahul, do you try cases alone? Not really. I have, but for the most part, recently, I always have at least one lawyer with me, if not more. Ben was going to try this alone, and I just, I mean, I guess I've tried bench trials alone, but... To me, going through a two-week jury trial alone, there, there's inevitably lows, and having to go through those by yourself and not knowing how it's going, I mean, that just seems terrible to me. So I didn't want him to have to do that. What's your thought, uh, just on that concept, Taylor, of when would it be beneficial to try a case alone versus having the benefit of, of amazing co-counsel? Maybe it depends on how you work. Maybe I, I that's not the first all the way I raised <laughs> yeah, it. You know, it's like yeah. I want the outcome. Um, I, maybe it depends on how you work. I mean, I Ben and I have slightly different styles in how we work. I need to process stuff verbally. And I don't know. It would be difficult for me to, to go through all the different facets of a trial without being able to process what was happening and how things were changing and Ben sort of gets to a point when he says, go away, I need to work, you know, really work. I can't just sit around talking to you. But that sort of communication is how I process. So look, I'm lucky, I think, that I started at a firm where that was the culture of two lawyers to a trial. And But now I can't imagine doing a jury trial by myself. What about you, Ben? What's your thought on it? For most of my career, I, I tried every case by myself uh, because my thought was, it seems wrong and arrogant, but I didn't 
feel like anybody would do as good a job doing what needed to be done as I would because I cared so much about it, put so much of myself into it and wanted to take ownership of it. And I just didn't trust anybody else to do that as well. But what I've realized over time is that there is enormous value to having a different person who has a different way of communicating and relating to jurors that's different from me. And because some jurors will form a connection with me, but others won't. And they'll, they might form a connection with, with a different, somebody who has a different style. I do think a, a male-female combination can be very powerful for that reason. But Taylor really does have a very different style than I do in a courtroom. He, he's more, I would say, he's a softer presence. He's more, he has kind of a more emotive personality, which you may already be able to see. But he, he's, uh, so I, I think that there is real value to that. You know, I don't think there's one right or wrong answer to it, though. I could see cases where it would be better to have only one lawyer in the room. And you hear the war stories are probably true about Mark Lanier that, you know, he never agrees to try a case with anybody and he won't even allow another lawyer to sit at counsel table because he wants to have that just uh, David and Goliath. It's just little old me against the big corporation. And he wants to project that kind of a, uh, an image. And I could see that being valuable. Of course, what they probably don't know is he's got about a thousand people that are behind the scenes, you know, doing a lot of things that are part of his team. But at least from the jury standpoint, they don't they don't see that. But yeah, and also what Taylor says, I'm sure you find this too. But it is physically demanding, and it's nice every now and then to not have to stand up and and do a witness. You can kind of relax for a few minutes and just criticize your co-counsel for not doing it as well as you would have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you pass post-it notes to Taylor during trial, but I'd love to read some of those. So, and back and forth, here's to, here's to Ben. What are you doing? Why are you asking that question? It's going too long. You know, occasionally I do do that, but the thing is, then I realized, like, it's a nice feeling when you, I'm also very controlling, but then I, a few, I realized like Ben's getting to the point you you want him to make. You know, you have to just at some point have faith that he gets the case. He's been working on it longer than you have. You don't need to tell him what to do. That is hard for me, though. It's hard for Ben as well, I know. Just one little war story. About 15 years ago, I tried a case with Brian, and um, and I was putting on a witness. <laughs> His voice carries a lot, right? Yeah, And so there's no whisper in the courtroom. So the jury's sitting there listening and I'll ask a question and they'll be like, that's not a good question. <laughs> Why'd you ask? You should just sit down. And so it's just like the whole room hears it. I was like, okay, I guess I'm done. So, so that, that communicates <laughs> can be fun, fun, funny, and mortifying. Yeah. I can imagine that would be a fairly scary proposition to, be trying your case with Brian looking over your shoulder like that. But if you can handle that, you can pretty much handle anything, I would, I would think. Totally. His sidebars are my favorite. So Taylor, tell me, what did you do? And do you have a method to preparing to present damages evidence to a jury? Or is it, you know, case by case specific? You know, this is such a 
maybe it's such an obvious answer, though. I find myself having to learn this over and over again, that there's no substitution for just spending time with the witnesses. And, you know, it's like these witnesses were far away, as Ben said, and it's a beautiful part of the state, really amazing. But in the winter, it's difficult. So I was thinking, oh, I'm going to go up there. I mean, I knew this client. I'd spent some time with him, but not very much. And then I basically spent a day with him and in his house, you know, some preparing, some just talking. And that day, we really connected. Um, and he, I think, you know, his trust in me grew a, a really significant amount. And there's just no substitute for that. It's, I could feel it when he was on the witness stand that he felt connected to me and he trusted me. And even when he was doing stuff, telling stories I didn't want him to tell, and there's always the preparation itself. It can be frustrating when, when your client isn't following all of your instructions, but of course they never do. And, but I, I think I felt comfortable enough with him to sort of try to steer him. And I wish I had more time. I, I just think that I've never had an experience when I didn't feel like I got back a lot from just the time with uh, with the client and with the people who know him and love him. So I guess that's really my only thought about that. Also, it's an amazing thing how witnesses don't know what stories are go- are going to be powerful. And so what always happens to me is I'll sit with a witness for three hours and at the very end, they'll tell me a story and I'll say like, tell that story. That is gold, you know? And they just were sort of mentioning it off the cuff, like, but it's, you know, the powerful, you have to dig for the powerful stuff. So, yeah, that's my thought. The other nice thing about having both of us there was that the trial goes on a long time and every day you're scrambling to prepare for the next day. And I was doing most of the witnesses and you can feel sometimes like you're abandoning your client because you don't have a lot of time to spend with them to, you know, go out to lunch or spend time chatting after the trial day. But because both of us uh, were there, Taylor was able to spend a lot of time with the client just during the trial. Um, And I think they grew even more connected during that time. And it made our client, I think, feel like we were, uh, we cared about him because we were able to spend some time with him. You know, a lot of times it's just, you, you feel bad because you are scrambling around and you don't have time to give your client that personal attention during the trial itself. If it's not another lawyer, I mean, you need a paralegal, you need somebody there because otherwise the client is, I mean, he was five and a half hours. He was an old man. He was five and a half hours away from his home, staying in a hotel for two weeks. It's a lonely place to be if there aren't people there spending time with you and uh, talking to you. Yeah. I was just going to say in another case recently and during a voir dire in federal court, which went on the whole day. We had our client there, but we hadn't, we didn't really, we weren't able to speak to her the whole day. And she called me afterwards and to her credit said, you know, that was a really hard experience. I didn't really understand what was going on. You know, it was scary. And I was really thankful that she felt comfortable enough to call me and tell me that. And I just realized how easy it is to forget what a intimidating process this is for clients. Yeah. You guys ever had a circumstance where you did not want your client there during the entirety of the trial, or do you always have your client there? 
my preference in most cases is the client is not there. It's sort of the exception to the rule where we want the client to be there. This particular client, I mean, the the injured party was his wife, so it wasn't going to be a case where people would be, uh, the jurors would be staring at him every moment to determine if, you know, how he was holding himself or walking down the hall. Or, he was also just a very uh, sweet, avuncular gentleman who his very presence was a positive thing, I felt, for, for us. And he wanted to be there. It wasn't a case where he could really commute from home and be there sometimes and not other times. So we made the choice with you know, discussions with him to have him present. But typically in a case where, where, we, where the injured party is living, we typically don't want them to be in the courtroom except for when they're going to be there to testify, maybe to receive the verdict or, or to come in on day one to uh, introduce them to the jury prior to voir dire. But w- what about you, Rahul? What do you guys do? I've got a trial coming up in, uh, in a couple of weeks and it, I'm, I'm like you, Ben, normally I don't want my client there. I just feel like it's pandering. And then it does create that opportunity where the jurors are just going to stare at that person and reach unreasonable conclusions. I definitely don't have them there for voir dire other than at the very beginning, just to, so that the jury can see them. Cause I really want that jury to speak frankly and the, the veneer to speak frankly about how they feel about my client. Yeah. But for the rest of it, I just feel like it's just mean to the client to do that. But in this next case I have, I I'm thinking that I'm actually going to have the client there the whole time. Yeah. He became an incomplete quad when his uh, black belt instructor broke his neck doing a move. And so he's had some, amazing efforts at recovery, but there's nothing that's, you know, I mean, he's an incomplete quad, a spinal cord injury at that level is so traumatic and so dramatic that no matter what he's done afterwards, him being in that courtroom is something that the jury's going to appreciate all of his limitations. So this may be the first time in a long. What a, what an interesting case. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have like a karate expert? I do. His name's, uh, so this was a jujitsu club where he was gravely injured and the Gracie family invented Brazilian jujitsu. And our expert is Henner Gracie, who runs the Gracie Academy and has trained over 300,000 people. So really, really going to be an interesting trial. I'm I'm looking forward to it. I'll look forward to hearing about it. But yeah, that's the first time. No, I'm looking forward to it talking to you guys about it, hopefully on, on the other side of it. And I hope we're able to justice for our client, but let's, let's get to the, the meat of it with respect to these back-to-back trials, kind of walk us through what happened, both a little bit about the case and about the outcome and about your states of mind and then rolling into the next one. So I, I can start on the first trial and then transition to Taylor for trial two and, or he can, give his uh, input into trial one. So we talked about this offline, Rahul, and uh, I, I told you, I think I texted you shortly after the verdict came back, we lost uh, the first trial. And it's always, I mean, as trial lawyers, I think the culture is people are very happy to talk about the wins, not real happy to talk about the losses. And 
And I had to debate about whether we would want to publicize that on our podcast, that we're actually human. And then occasionally we lose trials. But I think unless we're willing to talk about that and to try to you know, evaluate losses and try to learn from them, um, we don't really get better at doing this. And since we're really committed to, to be getting better at it, and that's what our podcast is about, uh, we can't just ignore losses and pretend they don't happen. So that's the, the speech about it. I will say I hate losing and I'm, and I'm really depressed about the loss. It was devastating to lose the case. It was one we really felt like we uh, would win and we should win. Probably the should is the more important part because we felt like we were on the right side of the justice of it. The the basic story of it, and I won't get into too many details, but uh, our client had had a uh, device implanted in her uh, mid-back called a thoracic cord stimulator, which is there for to help alleviate lower back pain, uh, goes into the spinal canal next to the spinal cord, and it emits little electrical signals that uh, help interfere with the electrical signals coming from the lower back and thereby eliminating or reducing back pain. So our client had that procedure and then ended up uh, sick and in the hospital uh, the following week and ended up uh, losing feeling and movement in her legs that uh, occurred over a period of, of hours and days. And at the culmination of that, um, when she first reported that she couldn't feel or move her legs, the nurse knew enough to know that this was a, a you know, a big problem, an emergency, and paged the overnight hospital doctor who then immediately paged the client's treating neurosurgeon who was at home. It was four in the morning. And the neurosurgeon uh, was told what the circumstances were, and she asked that certain imaging be performed. But the uh, the only treat... So what was going on is that in the area where they put the device there there was bleeding and a hematoma was had formed in the spinal canal and was compressing the patient's spinal cord which was what was leading to the lack of feeling and movement uh, and the only way to treat that is to do surgery to uh, drain the the blood and the hematoma and to uh, decompress the cord to allow it to you know regain its normal shape and function so that what the patient needed was surgery, and the patient needed surgery as soon as humanly possible. After the neurosurgeon was called, she hung up the phone and, and she went back to bed. And then for the next 12 to 13 hours, there was just a comedy of errors that occurred at the hospital, and the imaging that was needed, what, that the surgeon had asked for, never got done until about 13 hours later. And so there was a long delay in getting the patient to surgery to remove the hematoma. And by the time they did that, the cord didn't recover at all, and she remained permanently paralyzed. So our case was very simple. It was that when you're a neurosurgeon and you get a call at four in the morning that your surgical patient is newly uh, paralyzed, can't feel or move their legs, you have a duty to get out of bed, to come to the hospital, and to manage the process to get that patient to surgery as soon as possible. And had she done that, it was our contention that the patient would have been in surgery within hours. And we had a really good neurosurgeon who testified that 
and based on data and literature that actually is right on this subject, that surgery performed right away like that likely would have resulted in a, in a decent recovery where a client would have had functional spinal cord allowing her to walk and you know move her bowel and use her bladder and, and have kind of a, even if she still had some deficits, she would have had a, a, you know, a functional recovery. That was our case. And the defense was the neurosurgeon instructed other people on her team of what needed to be done to get certain imaging. And once the imaging was done, she was there and performed the surgery right away. And it wasn't her responsibility to uh, manage the process of getting the imaging done. And ultimately, you know, the jury must have agreed with that because they found for the neurosurgeon. I find it hard to believe that folks came to the case like, you know, with that viewpoint, but that's what the jury found. So, so we lost the case. We needed in Maine, you have a nine person civil jury and you need six out of nine to get a verdict. The vote on, on liability against us was seven to two. Now in this case, how many questions were on the verdict form and how many questions did they get through? So there were just three, uh, basically negligence, causation, damages. So they only got to negligence. We lost on that seven to two. You know, and our real concern going into the trial was that we would lose on causation. We thought because our client was paralyzed, even at the time they paged the neurosurgeon at home. And so, you know, they had an expert to say, well, even if they had gotten her to surgery sooner, it wouldn't have made any difference. Ultimately, I think the evidence on that issue, Taylor could talk about it because you know, I may have lacked some objectivity, but I think the evidence on that issue came in much better for us. And we had a really strong expert. We presented literature and data on that. They didn't have any data or literature or anything to support their argument that it didn't make a difference. So that was the issue we were actually worried about going in. We we thought on the the liability, whether the neurosurgeon had a duty to get out of bed and to manage the care of her surgical patient. You know, we thought we had a, a, a pretty strong argument there. And and we did some data study on that that confirmed our view that that, that, was, a, that was a strong argue, argument and that most folks uh, believe that to be the case. We'd like to thank the sponsors of the Elevate podcast, Steno, national court reporting service that allows trial lawyers to defer the costs of court reporting until the end of the case. Take a look, steno.com. And by LawPods. LawPods is the podcast production company that we use to produce the show that produces uh, podcasts for lawyers all over the country. They have an expertise in podcasting and the law. Check them out at lawpods.com. The thing that was hard about the loss was it felt like we won every day and almost every witness. I mean, Ben put on an absolute clinic cross-examining the defense expert. I mean, he was, this is a, was a career expert um, neurosurgeon who was very full of himself and he was completely destroyed by the end of Ben's cross. Everybody in the courtroom knew it. And it's frustrating because, of course, it feels like during the trial, it's about you and how you're doing. And we felt like we were winning. But of course, it's not really about us. And it's easy to forget that. I did feel one thing I was thought about after the loss was we had just gone through the Roger Dodd clinic. Yeah. 
which I learned, I learned we were going to be doing that through your podcast. <laughs> and, you know, that was a great experience and an interesting experience for a lot of reasons. But one thing that stuck out to me was we were doing this cross that Roger had done in a case. I don't know if he used it with you guys, but where a woman th- was pulled over for a DUI and threw up on the boots of the, uh, of the cop. And we were supposed to cross the cop. And I said to him after the cross, did you win this case? And he said to me, you idiot. Of course I didn't win the case. You know? And then he, he launched into this whole speech, which I really think I took to heart about how lawyers who, who value their, their performance based on winning and losing are always miserable. And that's a, I think that's a lesson you, you learn in criminal work very quickly. But I really felt, driving home after the verdict, I don't think anyone could have put on a better prosecution of that case than we did. And I feel proud of that. I mean, I wish the verdict would have been different, obviously. But I'm not sure. That's not to let us off the hook, but I just, I don't know that we could have gotten this case across the finish line with this jury. So at the heart heart of it, kind of looking back on it, is this a case where it was really jury dependent on whether you were going to be able to win or lose? I feel like in this case, we probably did lose the case when the jury was seated. And and I looked back at who was on our jury. So we told you there's nine. I think we had three people who were either claims adjusters or some kind of mid-level staff people at insurance companies. We had one guy who worked as a tax accountant for an insurance company, a um, recently retired tax accountant for an insurance company. We had an IT person who on day one or two of the trial, I can't remember, Taylor, they notified us that the juror had made the comment to the court deputy (laughs) that he wanted to shove the laser pointer I had used in my opening up my ass. And at that point I said, judge, I don't think, you know, this guy can continue to serve on the jury. He obviously, I had used the laser pointer literally like twice. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't the big feature (laughs) of my presentation at all. It wasn't like I was like pointing at him and putting the little red dot on his nose or anything. I think I had put it on a board twice, but the judge like voir dired him individually in chambers and concluded that he could still be fair. But I worried about that, of course. Never use the laser pointer again, by the way. And then we had two engineers. So, I mean, and these were the people we got after eliminating people for cause challenges that we didn't like. And one of the things I kind of reflected on in this, and it's actually something that I think we need to think about more globally, is that so in medical malpractice cases, it can be common that all people that work in the medical field are excluded from the jury. And there had been pre supplemental questionnaires beforehand and anybody who had self-identified as being in the medical field was flagged, but it wasn't our intent to have them all summarily removed. But what the, what the judge did on his own was he decided that he was just going to eliminate all of those people. And so when you're in a fairly rural state without a lot of industry like Maine, probably about a quarter of our jury population for that jury was somehow in the medical field, whether they were a therapist or a nurse or a clinician of some sort. And 
when you get rid of all of the medical people, my concern is, you know, there's there are cases where you have to worry about medical people on a malpractice jury, but also a lot of people in that field are they're in a they're in a human facing business where you could assume that some portion of them have real empathy and humanity and caring. And when you get rid of all of those people, you know, and if you're unlucky, like we were, we didn't have any therapists or teachers or, you know, we had insurance people and tax accountant and engineers and an IT professional and one self-employed contractor. So we didn't really have anybody in a field where they're face outward facing to humans that requires human contact and empathy. And I, I really worry about that. And I don't think I'm ever going to allow, if I can prevent it, them to just summarily get rid of all the medical people, even in a malpractice case, because that's who you end up being left with. Another interesting dynamic in Maine, and I don't know how to square this circle, but Maine is overwhelmingly a white state, and it sort of is a microcosm politically for what's happened with white people, the changes among white people all over the country, and that there's sort of a a more affluent, left-leaning part of the state. And then there's the more rural part of the state, which is trending to be more, especially with Trump, moved quite rightward. And we always sort of assume, well, we don't want the people on, you know, on the right side of the spectrum. But the problem is the people on the left side of the spectrum you know, are professionals who the populist sort of undercurrent of, especially this case, I think, the arguments are not effective. I mean... You know, when I, Ben was practicing his closing, and it had a strong populist tone, which Ben is very good at. But I, you know, there's a point. There was a point when he was talking about bureaucrat. You know, are we going to let bureaucrats make this decision? And I said, Ben, everybody on the jury is a bureaucrat. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, we don't, I, and I don't know what to do about that. But the pe- the anger that we were, that I thought was appropriate in this case. You know, this was not the right crowd to channel that. I mean, these are all people who get good care. They know a lot of doctors, right? They don't. The, the idea that a doctor would not come in, and you know, that's not something they would identify with. And this was care provided a long way from Portland, where the case was tried. And we tend to think, well, we want the cases in Portland because you know the verdicts will be higher. But it wasn't the right crowd for this case. Well, I think there's a lot of truth to what Taylor's saying is that I kind of got a feeling from the trial that the jurors, they really identified more with the neurosurgeon than with our client is just another way of saying what Taylor's saying and that they, our jurors were largely establishment people and we didn't have that anti-establishment bent. It might've been better for this particular case to have yeah. more of the you know, Trump voters who feel that they've been wronged by the establishment, but instead we actually had the establishment. And who's more establishment than a neurosurgeon? They're the pillar of the establishment. Now, that was part of our right. argument in the case is that you get all the status and benefits and privileges that go with being a neurosurgeon. And part of the flip side of that is you have the responsibility. And that means at four in the morning, when you're called for a medical emergency, you can't go back to sleep. Got to get up and come in. But 
But again, that's kind of a populist argument that this is an establishment figure. But ultimately, I do think we had a jury that was likely to connect more with the establishment side of the equation than with the anti-establishment side. And and Taylor's right. We don't really have that sort of disenfranchised urban population that you have in some states that want to lash out at establishment figures because they feel like there's they're, they're the victims of that system kind of time and time again. It's hard to find that in a, in a state like Maine, probably many other kind of rural states, states that are rural and lack diversity like Maine does. Yeah. Another interesting, and I don't know what the answer to this is, or if we made the right choice or not, but by settling with some of the defendants, we have a, the Perringer rule here. I don't know if you have that in California, but essentially the rule in Maine is when you settle with some defendants, the remaining defendant is allowed to choose whether to seek an allocation or an offset. And the defense attorneys, to their credit, I mean, they were very good defense attorneys, and they basically tried the allocation case and then asked for an offset. And we argued they should, we, the court should force them to allocate, but we lost, probably the judge was right to not force them to do that. But the net result of it was there was nothing on the verdict form allowing them to allocate, right? And so there was no question that a bunch of people in this case had been negligent who we were not, who were not involved in the case. And I don't know what the jury thought about that. I don't know if they assumed there was a settlement or they thought, why are these people not part of the case? But it was a difficult aspect of the case. So the way it was framed, if I'm understanding it right, is that nobody else was referenced on the verdict form. And it's possible in the jury room that the jury thought there were other more negligent parties exactly. and may have checked the box no because of that. Right. Yeah. And, and our argument, there was we found one superior court trial court case where they had forced an allocation, but there's really, it, it's a hard reading of the law because if you think about it, it's their burden to put on the case. So how can we force them to do it? But, you know, our argument was, you know, they've created a situation where the jury is going to want to allocate. They're not going to feel comfortable not allocating. And they don't know that there's a process. I mean, there's a vague reference to it in the instructions, but they don't understand that there's a process to make this fair, right? They don't know. So I think and, we would have been- Are you not allowed to explain that to the jury in your closing? We tried to get a, a- Ben had gotten an instruction about workers' comp previously saying, if you award money for workers' comp, there's a system to make that fair. And we argued for a similar instruction and the judge wouldn't give it. The instruction did say there could be two or more people at fault, of course, but- we wanted something on the verdict form that allowed them to write down the allocation, even though it didn't matter. Our position was they can choose the offset, but the jury should still be allowed to write down an allocation. But we lost that. And that was challenging. Well, now let's, let's transition. And first of all, thank you for sharing about this loss. It's never fun to talk about, but it is so beneficial for everybody in the trial bar to hear from people about their experiences, both uh, strategically and emotionally. And now that gets to the next part, which is this is a Thursday verdict. You've got all of that that happened. And then on Monday, you're going into a, a packed room with paparazzi and everything starting your next trial. 
So how Taylor, how did you, how did you transition and then tell us about the next one? Well, it was hard to transition, but it was good for me because I didn't have time to wallow. And so I just couldn't. And, um, you know, luckily I had made the very smart decision of having Meryl Poulin, who, you know, yeah, work on the case with me. And after I went to see her opening and, um, the last trial. And after I watched her opening, I said, you know, I think I want her to open in my case. And she did. You know, this was an interesting trial because it was a sex abuse trial, a child sex abuse case. And the, the, the young woman who is a remarkable person, I mean, really a real hero, she had come to us. She was in her 30s and, and said she wanted to bring this case and about abuse that occurred when she was between the ages of six and eight. And that she really wanted to do it in part because she just knew in her gut there were other people out there who had been abused by this man. Um, and she, you know, she felt guilt for not having come forward, and as I think a lot of victims do. So what we did, we filed the case in federal court uh, here, and she gave an interview to a prominent journalist here about the abuse. And within six hours of the article coming out, several other women came forward contacted us about being abused and some of the victim uh, the the alleged victims didn't come in but two of them did which um ended up being you know a really important part of the trial and that's part of the reason we filed in federal court you know here federal court there's good and there's bad i mean the bad of course is um you need a unanimous jury and in the first circuit at least you're not allowed to ask for a specific number for economic for non-economic damages, which I don't know what the principle behind that, except this idea that somehow asking for money is unseemly. I think it's a real disservice to the jury, but it's the well-established law. I mean, the cases have been reversed over it. So we made that calculated risk because of Rule 415, which allows other victims to come in if they're sufficiently similar. And that was the right call in this case. So it was um, an interesting case, and one we took in part because the client had made clear, you know, I have no interest in settling this case. This is a trial. I want a trial. And I feel very strongly that um, we are, the system, if people want to settle cases, there's value in that, of course, but the system the way the system is set up to pressure people to settle is really counterproductive. And, you know, trials have a real social benefit. Um, and I think this is, was one of those cases. So we took the case to trial and we got a great result. Interestingly, the, the defense in the case was sort of, it was sort of all over the place. But one of the main arguments the defendant made was, well, even if this happened, plaintiff wasn't that injured by it because she's a very high functioning person. Um, and she's basically doing fine. But that's a very difficult argument to make. And I don't, I think my read of the verdict is that the jury didn't agree. So that was, that was good because in a way, maybe that's the least offensive argument they could have made, but it was pretty offensive, I thought. So the defense was this didn't happen, but even if it did, not a big deal jury uh render a defense verdict but if you don't give her 
what, like 500 bucks or a thousand dollars or did they not even give a number? Well, they didn't, they weren't allowed to say just like we were, but, but yeah, that was the right. And, but there, they had this expert who ended up being great for us because, um, his position, he was relying on this extremely controversial literature. Mostly was, mostly it was about adolescent boys, which, you know, I know maybe, this isn't like the PC thing to say, but that's very different in my opinion. You know, 14-year-old boys having sex with their teachers and feeling like, oh, that was great. You know, that's not the same as a an eight-year-old girl being abused. But this expert had actually testified previously. I mean, I, you know, he's a forensic psychologist who had been around a long time. He had testified previously that certain claims of sex abuse were fabricated either intentionally, but mostly not intentionally. You may know there's a whole controversy about recovered memory. And he wanted me to know, it was very clear at his deposition, that he believed the client and he felt awkward about this. And, you know, he's one of these experts who really wants to be liked. And during his deposition, he gave me all this stuff about how this was not consistent with a false memory. It didn't really make sense that you'd be lying about this. So I used him, I think, pretty effectively to bolster the liability case. And I just felt that most people were going to be offended by the idea that a little girl, I mean, these were very serious allegations, you know, involving oral sex and the idea that that could happen to a little child and it's basically no harm, no foul. He actually, the the expert used the term skate through it. He said, you know, some people just skate through it and... I just think it's such a repugnant and obviously facetious argument that I think the jury saw that. Amazing. And then the, so you don't get to make an ask. The defense doesn't get to make an ask. And the jury decided based on your trial presentation to award how much? So they awarded two and a half million in compensatory damages and two million in punitive damages. Wow. What's interesting is, you know, this was a this was a very the judge is a very good judge but um, very by the rules and he had said to me before my closing Mr. Ason I want to remind you you cannot ask for a number and then of course the jury sends a note out saying if we reach a conclusion on liability can you give us some help with the with the with damages some guidance to which he re- he just responded no <laughs> you know and that was really hard I mean I think. Interestingly, I mean, I probably would have asked for more than that, but I think it was a reasonable, it was a good attempt by the jury to come up with a fair number. It's a really hard thing to ask a jury to do with no guidance. And tell us about the punitive, uh, how that phase worked, because that's an interesting part of this, the timing of it all. Yeah, well, so the judge had a, this is a judge who, to his credit, he's a senior judge, but he really likes trials. And he, he had just done a criminal trial and was going to Puerto Rico to do a, a, another trial. And one thing that it made me appreciate about federal court is they can just do whatever they want. So there was a huge snowstorm. He said, everyone's coming in. And then they rendered the verdict at 6.30 at night. We were expecting punitives to be the next morning. And Merrill was doing the punitive closing. And he said, okay, counsel, how many minutes do you need for punitive? And she said, well, your honor, can I like, pr- can I print out my notes? And he was clearly very unhappy. And she said, I'll just do it from my computer. <laughs> so it's like no time to waste. So he, he brought them back and said, okay, now you have more to do tonight. Um, 
interestingly, the, the, the defense lawyer who did the punitive damages had not spoken the entire trial. He was second chairing. And the other lawyer had been had had to go to a wake and was gone. So this other lawyer, who's a very nice guy and has a really act think I think actually a really good temperament for this kind of a trial, was forced to stand up and do this. And defending a case like this is not easy. Uh, you know, but he did a really nice job of trying to lower the temperature. And I actually th- thought, I wonder if the reason they gave less in punitives was the signal that they appreciated the way this younger lawyer handled this, you know, because, you know, the other lawyer is a very experienced and talented lawyer. He basically defended it like a criminal case where, you know, the thinking was, well, if they don't believe me, it doesn't matter, you know, so I'm just going to throw everything against the wall. And he made some pretty outrageous arguments. And, you know, I think this lawyer did a good job actually sort of saying, look, you've, you know, we respect your decision. You don't need to give any more. So it was an interesting case in that I think um, my sense was that the way it was defended, um, and maybe it was the best way to defend it because he went for a life, he went for a defense verdict, but it clearly did not sit well with a jury. Well, that's amazing. And congratulations to you and a great job getting Thank justice you. for your client on that. Yeah, it was a huge relief. <laughs> yeah. It was a huge relief. No, that's fantastic. I think we're done for now because we're we're at that hour point, but I I demand that we have another round with Taylor sometime in the near future, Ben. He's always available. Demanding. Yeah, Ben. <laughs> yeah. I'm wide Wait, open. On on, uh, <laughs> on days you can't make it, you know, he could be a substitute co host or something, but I'm already getting <laughs> fired. I think we can do we can find someone good from the West Coast to fill in. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. And and Ben, congratulations as well. Uh, and thanks for being a, a part of this particular podcast and, and sharing the hard stuff, not just the good stuff. I'll keep doing it. Hopefully the next one will be a, a good, positive war story. I know it will be. All right. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. For more information about today's guests and the topics discussed on the show, please visit our website at www.elevate.net. That's E-L-A-W-B-A-T-E.net, where you'll find guest profiles and show notes, and you can continue the conversation by joining our Facebook group. And if you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you'll subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review. So for now, keep on working to elevate your trial law practice, and we'll see you back again soon.